Today's Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading is Luke 23, verses 32 through 49. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord.
Welcome to each one of you who are here with us today, and again, welcome to those joining us on Zoom. Did you enjoy the palms coming in with the children? Isn't that amazing and wonderful? That is a a very special moment, of course, in not only church life, as we see the children participate in that way, but it's also a special day that we are celebrating today in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a day when he entered Jerusalem as a king. And it fulfilled, as we had read to us in the call to worship, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, Jerusalem, your king will come riding on the foal of a donkey. And if you trace back in Luke's writings, you will find that Jesus, just before this event, sent two men to search for the donkey. And all they would have to say to the man, and it's repeated again twice, is the Lord has need of him. And they fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Because Jesus came that day as a king, and there's a lot of things that we will talk about. And actually, if you would join with us in some of the other services we have coming this week, on the Good Friday service, which we will join with the Anglican, at the Anglican Church just down the street, at 10 o'clock in the morning, we will talk about this first entry as a king. And the debate which arises Under whose authority are you king? But that's not the only time he comes to Jerusalem because in this week he comes a second time and it's repeated a little bit by Luke to maybe give us a a sign, an indication that somehow the two events belong together in God's history. Because he sent two men to look for a foal of a donkey, now he sends two men to seek a room that he can meet with his disciples in secret. The first time he comes publicly as a king, the second time he comes in secret to become the ultimate Passover lamb. And he will say, and I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, the final one, with you. And we'll think about that on Monday, Thursday, as we meet together at 7 o'clock in the Church Methodist Hall. But today, we are looking at Jesus on the cross. Last week, we looked at Jesus, of course, as he was there, and the main concept from last week, and if you were not here and do not, um, you were not had the did not have the opportunity to listen to that, I would encourage you to Listen to that on the church website. It gives you an opportunity because these sermons in these three weeks flow one right after the other. And the main concept there, of course, is that historical moment when Jesus substituted or was placed in a position of substitution for Barabbas, the one who was guilty. This incredible truth of God where God has this self-substitution of him for us who are guilty. 
It's a key concept of us understanding what happened on the cross. But today I would also like us to look then in these verses which were read to us. And you'll notice as we were reading, they kind of group themselves in three different uh, series of verses with a different subject in each one. In verse beginning with 32, we're going to talk about the actual physical crucifixion. And then following that, in verse 39, on, as it begins about the two criminals who actually are answering the questions asked in the first bit, and then the actual death of Jesus from verses 44 to 49. And as they took him, it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him with the criminals. Now, in that, Luke is identifying a physical place and a specific moment in history. Many of you have visited this place. Most of us have seen at least a picture of it. Either we've Googled it or we've seen it in a book. And it is true on that kind of rise, that hill, where the Jesus was crucified, if one has the right perspective and you look at the rocks and the stonework at the base of that hill, if you have the picture, you will see it is not a perfect human skull in, in image, but the image is there. And so Luke identifies this not even as calling it that mountain, but he calls the skull a specific place that you and I can show and understand this is a specific moment in history and the place has been located for us. And then it goes on and says that these two, these two criminals were crucified with him. And I want to think with you just for a moment about what it meant to be crucified. You know, one was crucified by either the nails being driven through the hand or up here above the wrist so that the body would not fall. And then often the feet would be placed together in another large spike driven through the feet or just at the ankle level. You see, the truth about crucifixion was it was a horrible way to die. One did not die normally from the pain of the nails having gone into the hands and feet. The idea was you held up your hands. They were lifted up by the cross beams of the cross. And then your feet were nailed to the upright of the cross. And the only way a person could breathe is you had to push with your feet, which were nailed, to bring your, your body high enough that the diaphragm could function and move up and down and up and down so that you could breathe. And at the moment when you no longer had strength to push up, you began to sag and the muscles contracted and the diaphragm did not function. It was an incredibly difficult way to die. And that's what they did to these two and to Jesus. 
And then it goes on and he says, one at the right hand, one at the left. And then these incredible words of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As reading through this, you just think of, here's a God who is being crucified. They're inflicting incredible pain. He knows what is ahead, but how? look how he prays. Father, they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. And I would just say, if anybody is here today and you wonder, can God forgive me? Does God's love extend far enough that it wraps itself around me and my person and accepts me for who I am and yet forgives me for what I have done? Oh my, read these words to yourself. I would encourage you, go home and before you pray, read those words of Jesus ten times and then move on and accept his forgiveness. Father, forgive me. You see, he did not pray at that moment for those who knew what they were doing. There's a great difference if we know and we consciously know we are doing what is opposing God and we continue But here he cried out to God for those who did not understand. And then he goes on even further and look what it says. It says, and they cast lots to divide his garments or they for his clothing. And this people stood by watching and the rulers scoffed or mocked him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, let him come down from the cross. What is happening here is Luke is relating what happened and transpired on the cross with Psalm 22. Now Luke does not quote the other saying of Jesus like Matthew and Mark do. Matthew and Mark also include Jesus' cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that's verse 1 of Psalm 22. Now, why that is relevant in this account is because in that day and age, the Bible was not divided by Psalm 22 and verses 1, 2 through whatever. That came later. But the way that they understood the psalm was they memorized the whole psalm. And what they identified it by was the first verse. One time in my early Christian or early missionary years, I had a friend who had memorized big chunks of the Bible, big parts of the Bible. Um, Because of his own personal life and walk, this is the way God restored his mind and his emotion to him. And I remember in a prayer meeting with Mike, he would pray, but he knew the Bible so well, he didn't pray the verse. You know, if I pray, I say, well, God, you know, if you so love the world, I know you love me, or I'd quote some verse. Well, Mike only quoted the reference. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where the person only quotes the reference? Oh, God, according to John 3.16, we thank you for your love. And we know according to John 14.6 that you are the way to the Father. And according to John 10.10, we have life and we have it more abundantly. And according to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, we can have these blessings of God. 
The second prayer meeting, I took my Bible and I was whipping through it to find out what he was saying. Well, in this day and age, people had memorized much more of the Bible. And so as Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look what they do. In that verse that Luke writes for us, and he says, and they took my clothing and they cast lots for it. Wow. And then they, they, they mock me and they called things out to me. Look what it says here in verse 7 and 8 in Psalm 22. It says, they throw their mouth with their mouths, they wag their heads. Oh, if you are the Christ. And he who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, he in whom he delights. You see, that was exactly what the priests were saying back to him. If you are the Christ, if you are the chosen one of God, come down. You have rescued others. They're quoting it right back to him. You have rescued others. Rescue yourself and we will believe. And Psalm 22 goes on and it says, And they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. And then listen to this in verse 18. And they have divided my garments among them. And they are gambling or they are casting lots for my clothing. Luke wants to remind us that as Jesus was being put on the cross, Psalm 22 became real. And the question, of course, that they were begging the answer for, are you really the one who is coming from God? Are you God himself coming? And of course, even other Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 53, who in many cases, Orthodox Jewish families would not read because the verses there are so clear about the crucifixion. It would be avoided. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you begin with verse 17, it says, anyone who is in Christ is is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, all is new. And then chapter 18, how through Christ, God reconciled our, us to himself. And then verse 19 says, and God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God in Christ. That's who he is. The one who died for us. Well, it goes on, doesn't it? And in the next verses that we look at, it talks about the two criminals. The first one railed at him saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Humanity has not changed much in the last 2,000 plus years. How many times have you heard someone say, Well, if God was really God, he'd fix this. If God really loved me, this wouldn't happen. You see, this criminal wants to escape the consequences of his sin, the consequences of what he's done, and have God do a miracle to simply remove him from the consequences. And you cannot have a true spiritual renewal without dealing with the consequences. There must be repentance. Otherwise, it's actually affirming the wrong behavior. But the second one, in great contrast says to him, do not you fear God? Think for a moment. 
They were on a cross. They both knew that in a matter of minutes or a few hours, they would no longer be alive. And one turns to the one who he thinks might be the one from God himself. And he just says, if you do it my way, take me and you and I will believe. And the other one turns and says, don't you fear God? When I first started pastoring, I used to really struggle to do a funeral. But then I began to realize, and so actually the pastor I worked with, I did all the weddings, and he did the funerals. I just didn't know what to say. And then I did some funerals for believers. Oh my. The difference between a funeral for a believer and someone who does not believe is immense. But I began to realize that in a funeral, whether it's a millisecond or a significant moment of time, every person for some moment, some window, begins to think about, is there more to life than just this? And this man on the cross, we don't know, it doesn't tell us what moved him. Maybe it was hearing the one who was innocent, the one who was righteous, being nailed to a cross, and he knew he was not guilty, and yet he was dying with them who were guilty, and at the same time praying, Father, forgive them. And my, if what he had preached about there comes a resurrection, there comes an eternal life, there is a kingdom, then we must know in that kingdom justice will happen. And you want to be a place, want to be in a kingdom like that. And he cries out to him and he says to the other thief, but we are guilty and he is not. Our condemnation our just is just. In other words, he owned his responsibility. In that moment, he turns and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I had written myself a note that sometime previously, in reading through this chapter, I had gone through a phase in reading of the Bible Whenever, whatever my daily reading was, I would read it ten times. And I would find that if I read that ten times, that each time there would be something different, I would jot it down. And on this verse, it took till the tenth time. Excuse me. It moved me then, and it moves me now. It took ten times of reading it when I finally realized the second thief did not say, oh Christ, oh God. He cried out, Jesus! You see, the angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. And a dying man realizes what I need is not a Christ, not a king. I need a savior. I need one who can move me from this world to the eternal world. Forgiven. And he cries out and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds with immediate 
forgiveness, immediate acceptance, and full confidence of an eternity with Christ. Just think of that. Today, and he doesn't say to everyone who's there watching, he doesn't say to the other thief, he looks if he can, I don't know if he looked, but it says directly, you. Oh my, isn't that a great sound? Wouldn't you cry out to Christ, to Jesus, and say, Jesus, and want to say, and you will be with me in paradise today. In other words, there is no kind of neutral dwelling place to which he is saying you will go and you'll wait for a number, number of years. No, he said, today in Christ with me. Total forgiveness. Complete acceptance. An assurance that at the moment of death, he moves with Christ into the kingdom of Christ. Now, that gets us to the death. And I have three minutes. <laughs> I'm sorry. But in the final section, there are about four things I'd like to point out to you. First is the signs that happen. One was the darkness. All I can say is in a moment when the sun should be shining, and for three hours there is no more sun shining, it would certainly shake us. The only thing I personally have experienced similarly is being in an earthquake. When you walk, or they during the main tremor or the aftershocks, you put your feet on ground, which has always been firm, and it moves. It left me with an incredible impression I'd never had before. What I'm thinking is these who are on the cross with Jesus, but those watching, all of a sudden, the natural process of creation changed. And they had to ask themselves the question, what is God doing? Then the next thing that happens, it says that the veil in the temple was torn in two. We've talked about that previously, but remember that that temple where the Jewish people worshipped. And if I understand this correctly, at that moment the veil tore in two. The whole process of Jewish worship came to an end. They restored it. But it, you see, it was a thick veil, they say, maybe six centimeters, maybe even greater in width or depth, however you say it, thickness. So it didn't unravel from the bottom up. It would not have simply moved apart. It was as if God himself from heaven reached down, maybe through his Holy Spirit, and he ripped it apart because in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, that place we talked about where God met with man when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat propitiation. But you see, a priest could not even enter because now God was there. But if we take it from the other side, you see up to that point you could get that close, six centimeters, to the presence of God. But all of a sudden, there was nothing between mankind and God. Direct access to God. That's what's happening when Jesus dies on the cross. Direct access to God. You can bow your head and your heart and in a millisecond shoot up an arrow prayer to heaven and it's direct access. In Acts chapter, it was never before. 
Did men and women, children have direct access to God? Never since the fall. And now we do. And, and it's like in Acts chapter 7, which tells us the story of Stephen, who was not a disciple, but he was a deacon who gives one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, he goes through the whole history of Israel and leads them up to where they have crucified Jesus. And at that moment, if you could read it this afternoon, you'll find it says, and then he looks to heaven and he sees heaven open and he sees the throne of God and the lamb or the lamb or the man or the man, excuse me, son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. Wow. Direct access, you see. I remember when I was reading those verses in, when we lived in Austria, one of my Austrian friends came over and he had been reading and he said, Dennis, do you see what it says? Dennis, do you see what it says? And I, he was excited much more than I, and I couldn't understand why he was excited. And he said, you know, it says when Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, ascended up and the triumphs of heaven and they seated him at the right hand of the Father and he would have been seated there and all of a sudden, look, he's standing up. I don't know how you do it always in the Schweiz, but in Österreich hat man immer die Hände geschüttelt, bevor man zu Hause ging. In Austria, the one thing I had to learn as an American was, every time I went into a group, I shook every hand. And it was incredibly, you could tell if people had something against you, if they shook your neighbor's hand, and the next neighbor's hand, and not yours, you needed to go and talk. And it was the same way when you left. You shook every hand. And so my Austrian friend said, do you think the Lord is standing up to reach out his hand? You see, direct access to God comes through the cross and Jesus' death. And then Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was the plan of God. We are responsible but when Jesus tasted death for all of us, it did not stop the plan of God. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then the final three verses have three different groups who are looking at this. And as I was reading, I realized that in English it uses the same word in two. They saw or they have seen. And the third one was also another word, but it also has the same meaning or connotation that they were watching. And so I thought, well, maybe does Luke use different words in the original? And as I looked in that, yes, he does. The centurion is a C that means he saw and he began to comprehend a bit deeper, not only physically seeing, but emotionally seeing. And he saw and he says, now this is a righteous man. You see, even a centurion knew that righteous men die differently than unrighteous men. One of the greatest moving moments is, why don't you Google this afternoon, death words or final words of famous men. And you'll find some there, great philosophers, great scientists who cry out, light, light, give me light. It's dark! And then as I have stayed with Christians who have passed from earth, this earth to eternity, 
I have seen some of them turn to me and say, do you see? Do you see him? Do you hear the music? Do you see the angel? I've even seen a person who was lying flat in their bed, ready to pass for a week, and all of a sudden at the moment of death, sit up and reach out and hug. The reality of eternity, you see. But this man saw a bit. And then it says the group, the crowd, who they went away beating their chests like saying, oh my, we didn't think it was going to end like this. What do we do? All it says is they just physically saw. But then those who were his acquaintances, those women who had followed and been with him, it uses a whole different word. It means to see with one's eyes and to perceive with one's heart, to understand spiritually what was going on. And so my three minutes are over. Actually, it was seven. But let me close with this. If you were going to identify your spiritual life with one of these last three, how much have you seen and understood and perceived about the one who died on the cross for you? Have you understood that this was God in the person of Jesus Christ substituting himself for you? That the innocent took the place of the guilty, you and me, that we could go through free. And if you are going to utter a prayer today, would your prayer be that of the first criminal or that of the second? Would you say, oh God, I want you to do it this way? Or would your heart cry out, Jesus, remember me? The second was forgiven and went into eternity with him. That's what's happening when Jesus died on the cross. He opened eternity for each and every one of us. Direct access to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words and verses from your Bible that teach us the truth that when you died on the cross, these things happened. And I pray now that you'd take our minds, take our thoughts, and Lord, might your Holy Spirit move among us and teach us the true meaning of what happened. And may our hearts rejoice and identify and say, Lord, we need a Jesus, one who saves us, and one who forgives us, one who accepts us, and one with whom we will dwell and be for all of eternity. So we worship you and we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.